Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Almighty God, you have spoken to us through your Son. Let your written word now be spoken and heard by each of us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand, that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. May we all be taught by you through your powerful word. Amen. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them not even in front of the door, as he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing with them a paralyzed man carried by four other men. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes that were sitting there questioned in their hearts, why does this fellow speak this way? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he did turn to the paralytic and say, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And the man stood up, immediately took his mat, and went out before all of them. They were amazed, and they glorified God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. So if you'll bear with me, I'll come around in a bit to the, that reading from the letter to the Romans. I suppose one needs a good reason to read other people's mail. So I'll try to construct a rationale that might help us to be ready to hear Paul's words in a timely way. It occurs to me that one way of understanding what the season of Lent is about is to think about putting one's house in order. In the early centuries of the Christian church, when the custom was to celebrate the sacrament of baptism during the pre-dawn darkness before Easter morning only, The six weeks leading up to Easter were given shape and meaning by spiritual instruction and preparation for nothing less than a hinge moment of life. Though in more recent generations, we've made baptism a more movable feast around the year, and the focus of Lent has shifted a bit away from renunciation and toward fresh spiritual practices, the Christian family still finds it useful to think of the 40 days leading up to Easter as a season of reassessment, realignment, reorientation. 
renewal. Of course, we still tend to think of all that rework as an essentially personal project. When the spiritual disciplines of Lent are helpful in getting the house of someone's heart and the house of someone's conscience in order, well, that's never a bad thing, even though it can also sometimes feed the hyper-individualization that's so rampant in our society as though nothing mattered more than how things are spiritually for me. But it seemed to us in the staff of this church that the weeks leading up to this particular Easter might be a time in the life of this particular community to think about the house that we might be hoping to put in order together, the house that we are together. And as we began to ponder how in this transitional year of all years, Lent could be about communal renewal, about reorientation for the future that God has in mind for us together in this church, it occurred to us to ask a question that you've already heard this morning that's really about the meaning of this house. Why are we here? Now maybe it seems strange to think of a house as something that has meaning. But if we think about putting this house that we are in order as we make our way to a turning point, it's perhaps not such a stretch to think of Lent asking us some questions of meaning. What does this house that we are together stand for? Why does it matter, this house? What difference does it make, this house? Why are we here? In some ways, this Lent started back in November when our elders and deacons went on retreat together and did an exercise that felt like starting to put the house in order. The reflections that we collected that weekend work well as a way of thinking about why we're here and what the meaning of this house that we are might be. And we'll be carrying those reflections all the way through Lent. Last Sunday, Pastor Jay focused on a first insight from that retreat, which is that we're here partly because we know something together about brokenness and because we long for wholeness. So today I'm thinking about how we know something together about being stuck and because we long for movement, for change, for a return to vitality. Well, if the goal is to put the communal house in order, then it's an odd thing to start by punching a hole in the roof. <laughs> but that's how chapter 2 of the Gospel of Mark begins, as you heard. The story's on its way through a number of barriers to a hinge moment. And before it's through, it will have pushed that story not only through the ceiling of that house in Capernaum, but also through the crowd that didn't even realize that they were in anyone's way, and through the assumptions of the scribes who felt that it was their job to be in everyone's way where God's forgiveness was concerned, and even, even through the complicated boundary between sin and suffering. 
It's interesting that the person who starts the breaking of all those barriers in the story is someone who, as the story begins, is actually pinned motionless by their life circumstances. With the rest of the crowd, we can see the external problem. It's paralysis that causes abject dependence on others for mobility. We can't see the internal problem, but Jesus can. Jesus knows about the paralytic because Jesus knows about all of us that there are things we carry inside that pin us to the past, things that crave forgiveness. Most of us know something about the experience of being stuck and something about the longing for forward movement, the hope for change. So Jesus goes deep. He speaks directly to the inner knot that this paralyzed person is carrying. Your sins are forgiven, Jesus says. That's the first thing. But it's an audacious thing. It breaks through a barrier for some who are watching in that packed room who are sure that the rules say that the restoring love of God is a finite thing. So that if some itinerant rabbi or anyone else goes around giving it away to just anybody, it'll run out or stop meaning anything. Or perhaps most dangerously, it'll raise the dignity of people that some would like to be able to continue to look down on. The text says that those scribes, the ones with their fingers in the pages of the rule book that think that they think places limits on access to God's restorative forgiveness. Those scribes are scandalized. How dare this fellow presume to proclaim God's forgiveness? They're convinced, of course, that they know who deserves that forgiveness and who doesn't. The text says that they question in their hearts, not that they sputter their outrage out loud, but they don't have to because Jesus is going deep. Jesus knows hearts and knows the kinds of things that get muttered in certain kinds of small ones. So Jesus says, more or less, the thing about God is that God wants people unstuck. Let's see, Jesus says, Let's see how much God wants this one to be unstuck. Then he turns to the paralytic and says, more or less, show us how unstuck you are. There's no explaining what happens then. At least, I can't do it. But as the one who has been paralyzed walks home, carrying his own pallet to put his own house in order at last. Jesus' wide view of God's generosity has certainly won out over the scribe's narrow view of God's selectivity. Now, at this particular hinge moment in our history, when we're so particularly aware of illness and its implications for communities, 
there are a couple of things that it's really important to notice about this story of healing. One is that in the case of the person who was lowered down to Jesus through a hole in the roof, there are two dimensions of being at stake, the spiritual and the physical. They are distinct, and Jesus addresses them separately. First one, your sins are forgiven, and then the other, take up your pallet and walk. Illness is not a moral state. We can't say that often enough now. That said, for most of us, our relationship to our body is probably very much influenced by our relationship to our conscience. And when one is restored or unburdened, the other often can move more lightly. We are permeable to well-being. In fact, I'd venture to say that well-being is actually a very contagious aspect of our existence, individually and collectively. You know that if you've ever been touched just by the presence of one of those people who is luminous with well-being. And one of the most unmistakable messages of this story is that God desires our well-being, which is to say our wholeness, and that Jesus has things to say to each dimension of our state of well-being that can get us unstuck. Okay, well, so this is finally the right moment, I think, to listen in on the words that Paul wrote to the young church in Rome as they struggled to get their spiritual house in order. We should remember that Paul wrote this letter back near the very beginning of our life together in the house of Christianity to a church that was quite possibly younger than this congregation. And when Paul himself was a newer Christian than some of you, Listen to how much Paul knows about being stuck in the seventh chapter of that letter to the Romans. And I'm going to read it from Eugene Peterson's remarkable paraphrase called The Message, which is a way of sidestepping some of the complexity and confusion that Jay was describing <laughs> to all of us when he spoke to the children a minute ago. Listen for stuckness. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more, for I know that the law, for I know the law, but I still can't keep it. And if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. 
It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands. But it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel. And just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Being pinned to pieces of the past is part of what Paul carried with him. His honesty about that experience of being stuck must have been breathtaking to those young Christians in Rome. And somehow, finally, the freedom that he found in Christ filled him with so much confidence and joy that he rode it to every corner of the known world of his time and sent them all letters to encourage them in his absence as they worked to put their various houses in order. Those letters landed then and land still in the midst of communities in the process of reorienting themselves to the breadth of God's restorative power. So letters to communities, yes, other people's mail, are the medium par excellence by which we can find encouragement for the work we need to do together to understand what this house stands for and why it matters and what difference it makes. And as we do that work now, in this particular season, in this particular church, we need not to miss one thing about this story without which there would have been no miracle that night in that full house in Capernaum. It's not just the story of one person's healing. It's also the story of those four people who started the breaking of the barriers by dismantling the roof. Unroofing the roof is what the Greek really says, though who knows how they did it. And with that, any sense, with the dismantling of that roof, the dismantling of any sense of sealing on the power of God to get us unpinned. The story doesn't tell us how many times the four of them walked around the house looking for a way to get their friend in or how many shoulders they tapped on to no avail, or how much they tried to nudge a wedge through all those people who probably had no idea that their piety was keeping anyone else out, or how long it took them to get their immobile friend up to the roof. We don't know how much faith of his own, if any, their paralyzed friend had, his or her own, who knows, who that person was. We don't know how much faith that pinned body contained. Maybe it was one of those situations where the four of them said to their friend, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how much you believe, we'll believe for you until you can believe yourself. Now come up to the roof. But the text says that it was when Jesus saw their faith 
their faith. And the Greek word actually connotes not just trust or belief, but fidelity. It was when Jesus saw their faith that he said to the paralyzed one, your sins are forgiven. As though to say, with people like that around, we have something beginning here. With fidelity like that, we have a church. With faith like that, we'll come unstuck. With friends like that, there will be movement There will be change. People like that move the world. The late New Testament theologian Walter Wink wrote, history belongs to the intercessors. They believe the future into being. History belongs to the intercessors. They believe the future into being. The story of the church on its way to its hinge moments, the story of the world on the way to its turning point, is the story being written to this day by the intercessors, the ones who pour out their prayers, the ones who push the barriers, the ones who remove the ceiling between us and the generosity, the power, the healing, and the forgiveness of God. They believe the future into being. And they are sitting all around you right now in this room. They are. The intercessors. The ones whose faith may not be perfect, but is enough at least to convince Jesus that there's movement going on here. That we, even we, after all we've been through, can be unstuck. Which is part of why we're here. Amen. The psalmist writes, The Lord is good to all God has compassion on all that God has made. Today in our Lenten prayers of the people, when I say, God of compassion, I invite you to respond. Hear our prayer. God of compassion, hear our prayer. Let us pray. Divine Spirit of love in this world, we come to you grateful this day and every day for the ways you appear among us, for the wonders of the sacred and holy that emerge when we least expect it. Thank you, Jesus, for mercy shown, for grace given, living water, and spirit's power. Broken and blessed people, we know our vulnerability, our need. You know that it is hard for us to admit to it, and sometimes we feel ashamed that we are more fragile than we let others see. Our desire to be in control and our refusal to appear weak get in the way of our deepest encounters with you. Heal us from and through all of that. Each precious day, let us see ourselves as you see us, with a vision that will surely be beautiful and unsettling. Then we ask you for daily strength. We need of you sure hope for tomorrow. 
We reach for your word to guide and steady, strong feet to follow, a clear voice to call others to come to. God of the oppressed, we bring to you the broken ones, forgotten ones, exploited and abused ones. Bring freedom and release, love and compassion to damaged hearts and souls. God of compassion, hear our prayer. God of the distressed, we bring to you the grieving ones, the hurting ones, the suffering and wounded ones. Bring wholeness and healing, comfort and relief to broken bodies and minds. God of compassion, hear our prayer. God of the dispossessed, we bring to you the lonely ones, the homeless ones, the thirsty, tired, and penniless ones. Bring hope and sustenance, physical and spiritual food to hungry bodies and souls. God of compassion, hear our prayer. God, who is good and compassionate to all that you have made, it is possible to know the peace that you offer. It is a gift to be wrapped in the love you so unconditionally give. It is transformative to be embraced in your compassion and so leave here to embrace others in that same spirit. Holy Spirit of light, be with those we love. Save us from our fears. Let the best in each one of us emerge in these trying times in the way of unity and trust, in the pursuit of goodness and truth. Let your light allow us to see and seeing to move towards your wholeness and holiness with joy. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us these words to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.